welcome to Typology, the show in which we explore the mystery of the human personality through the lens of the Enneagram. I'm Anthony Skinner, producer of the show, and we are celebrating a successful season one with nearly 2 million downloads, and we are celebrating by revisiting five of our favorite podcasts. That is our favorites, your favorites, the most downloaded podcasts. Today, we have with us Mike McCarg, better known as Science Mike, podcaster, speaker, and best-selling author of the book Finding God in the Waves. Mike hosts Ask Science Mike, a weekly question and answer podcast. He co-hosts the Liturgist podcast with his friend Michael Gunger. Mike frequently appears before sold-out audiences in major cities like New York, Chicago, and London. He's a favorite for churches, colleges, and conferences exploring the intersection of science and faith and a frequent contributor to Relevant Magazine, Storyline, and The Washington Post. He is also a frequent guest on radio programs and podcasts worldwide, including recent interviews on Sirius XM and NPR. We're happy to have Science Mike with us today. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Typology Podcast. And of course, you can follow Ian on Twitter at Ian Cron. And his Instagram is at Ian Morgan Cron. Lastly, let us remind you of the Patreon campaign. If you aren't familiar with it, it's a great way for you to contribute to Typology on a monthly basis. For as little as a dollar a month, you can partner with us and help us cover the costs it takes to pull off each episode of Typology. There's a lot that goes into each episode to make it all happen. All you have to do to help us out is go to www.patreon.com forward slash typology. That's www.patreon.com forward slash T-Y-P-O-L-O-G-Y. Select the level at which you want to support the show. As a thank you for your support, you're going to get a bunch of great bonus content as well. So even a dollar a month, folks, it's a huge, huge help. So thank you very, very much. Well, we've got Ian and Science Mike waiting in the wings. So let's get on with the program. Here is the host of our show, Ian Cron. Hey, Typology friends, this is Ian Cron, and today we have my good friend, Science Mike McCarg on our show. Uh, For those of you who don't know, who don't know Mike, he's the host of uh, the popular podcast, Ask Science Mike, and he's the co-host of the podcast, The Liturgists, with my friend, uh, Michael Gunger. And I have to say, by the way, about about the show, The Liturgists, uh, Mike, is that I think that was the first podcast we were on when, right before our new book, uh, The Road Back to You, came out. And I think you probably sing you and mike michael probably single-handedly launched us uh, given that you get a million downloads a month at least at that time on uh on the that's Liturgist. that episode just crossed three million total downloads so it's done quite well are you serious totally serious yeah oh my gosh that's a huge number yeah it still gets thousands and thousands of downloads a day still <laughs> Well, I wish so. people were buying my book at thousands and thousands of people a day. <laughs> oh, yeah. I've noticed that, too. Podcasters, they love the free podcasts. They're a little more hesitant with the paid book, but yeah, you know, that's how it goes. Wow. Well, that's 
That's exciting. It's pretty cool. So you're you're an author, right? You your wonderful book Finding God in the Waves was a was a bestseller. You're a podcast. I have seen you speak. In fact, years ago I saw you speak at the Wild Goose Festival, which I think was one of your sort of your one of your early sort of I don't know if this is true or not, but I was under the impression then it, it was sort of a sort of the beginning of an of an upshot for you as a as a speaker is that was is that a fair assessment that's that would be completely correct yeah, yeah. and i remember thinking yeah. look we got a player here <laughs> <laughs> uh, all by accident but yeah that was uh yeah um, it was, I, I mean I, i've done a lot of like tech conferences back in the day uh, my nerd background right. but the science mic and spirituality stuff that was that was all new wild goose era yeah and you were actually talking about um science faith and i think we were talking about you were talking about racism is that is that correct uh yeah i gave a main stage talk about peacemaking that included a lot of uh discussion of race and racism okay because so, i mean you can't talk about peacemaking in america and not talk about race and racism <laughs> exactly that's exactly right so it is funny that you gave it as a as a nine on the enneagram someone who is a peacemaker that you were giving a talk on peacemaking at the wild goose festival <laughs> and i did not know i was a nine at that time either isn't um, that amazing i actually had a really hard time figuring out what i was on the enneagram which i understand now is kind of a nine thing but yeah, um, nines and sixes often have a, a very difficult time figuring out their number. Now, if for nines, uh, the the reason uh, a part of the reason has to do is that you can see the world through every number's eyes except your own. So you know you identify more strongly with every other type than any other type would, and therefore you would be kind of conflicted and confused. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, it's brutal. I was sure. That I was either uh, a two um, or a five, mm. and um, because but when I would take the tests, you know, the online tests, which I, you know they're not the best, but right. when you're starting out, that seems to be the only option. Google is your first bet, and I would just kind of score flat across all the categories with just a little peek at two and a little peek at five. Uh, because if you ask a nine, what do you think about blank? We're like, I, I don't know. What do you mean? What do I think? What, <laughs> what, 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 you, you think I have like a, a, an opinion or a preference? No, that's a foreign concept to me. I just understand that those things exist and that other people have them. And it's easy for me to understand what your preference would be, but it's impossible to understand what I want for dinner. I mean, my gosh, what is a want, right? <laughs> right. Oh, listen, I am married to a nine. I, I, I am married to a nine, and I'm the father of a nine. And oh. so I have a profound affection for nines, these peacemakers um, whose unconscious motivation is really to avoid conflict at all costs, to maintain relational connection, the status quo, and to preserve inner peace and harmony. Would you would you add anything onto that about nines, their inner sort of unconscious motivation? Yeah, I think uh, that desire for inner and outer peace, it means we unconsciously absorb other people's emotional energy. Hmm. So if other people are upset with each other and they're both our friend... Or if we're in a charged national political environment, say, hypothetically, with a lot of polarization, it's exhausting to the nine because 
we're unconsciously pulling in everyone's thoughts, but not letting it affect how we are on the outside or how we are at our innermost place. So we end up having this like calm interior, calm exterior. And then there's this giant jello shock absorber in between the two. And that's unconsciously the reason nines are always so tired and always ready for a nap, I think, is that it's exhausting to absorb all that emotional energy all the time and to not be moved or affected by it. Yeah, I I mean, uh, you you think about the idea of boundaries, right? Psychological boundaries. Um, Nines have an internal boundary and an external boundary. The internal boundary is to hold down uh, any desires or feelings, uh, to hold, to tamp them down, to sort of turn turn the flame down on them so that they don't disturb that calm inner sea and then you've got an external boundary against all the other people in the planet that might you know cause (laughs) you know internal tumult and so yeah you are exhausted you know now can i ask you a question about that do you sometimes or have people ever commented on the fact that you sometimes if you just sit down for a while you just nod off uh i went on a um trip with some friends to the holy land and uh, it quickly became the joke in the group that I could fall asleep literally anywhere. We were in this <laughs> this really noisy cafe in the West Bank, and we all sat down for like five minutes, and I leaned my head back against the wall, and I was out, yes. deep sleep. They all left without me, didn't realize I was sleeping in a chair in the cafe and had to go back for me. Now that's very funny. <laughs> And it's it's very nine. I mean, I just I know nines that they just uh, we you know we 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 say in 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 the enneagram literature that nines have less stamina than any other number on the enneagram. Eights have more stamina or energy than mm. any other number on the enneagram. And I I agree with you. I think it's because you're you're having to hold up two boundaries, not just one. And it makes it's exhausting and. If you are in a highly con- a place where there's a great deal of conflict, uh, like my daughter, Maddie, who's a nine, this is no exaggeration. My daughter, Kaylee, is an eight. She is an activist. She is outspoken. She's intense. My son is a seven who has a lot of energy and loves to get my eight daughter going. And just for the sake of, you know, let's have an argument uh, to be, enter- <laughs> you know, just to be entertaining. So we're in the car one day in New York. There's a protest going on. It was actually a Black Lives Matter protest protest is going on kaylee goes on uh really onto a uh you know an opinion rant aiden is stoking it and my nine maddie has crawled up into a ball and fallen asleep Mm -hmm. in between Mm -hmm. them in the back seat just the stress of the conflict she just went out right oh oh man that uh that almost ended my marriage that same tendency Ooh, tell, uh, me, I'm married tell us about to that. a six oh. and a counterphobic six. Um, so who, who can if look she like gets an into yeah, so when she gets into a conflict, she is into the conflict. And if we get too intense or argue for too long, right? A, she gets frustrated that I never uh, react emotionally. Mm-hmm. It's like trying to argue with fist fight with a beanbag, right? Like it just. Right. Absorbs the blows, doesn't ever hit back. But then also, I'll actually start yawning uncontrollably oh. if the oh. argument goes too long because I struggle to stay awake 
in intense times of conflict. At low levels of conflict, I'm really good at finding other people's emotional levers and kind of soothing them and calming them and getting things under control. But if that fails, and if a conflict escalates to a point where I realize there's nothing I can do about it, I'm either going to fall asleep or occasionally erupt with such terrifying anger that the conflict ends because everyone's afraid that the usually sleepy nine suddenly looks like a dangerous wild animal. Because um, we don't, I, in my experience as a nine, there is no um, anger middle gear. You're either inert or the surface of the sun. Mm. And um, it's a really, it's a really frightening place to be because it, it, I don't get angry often. On those occasions that I do have uncontrolled anger, those are the times when my emotional sensitivity and awareness of others backfires because I'll say something so cutting Hmm. and so cruel that it actually wounds the person I'm in conflict with in a significant way, which then reinforces this fear of my own anger. Mm. Um, so trying to get to a healthy place with anger for a nine is so, so challenging. Okay. Well, how do you do um, it? How do you do it? I don't know that I have totally in my life. I, I've, I've started to, um, unpack and become a, more aware of where, how my nineness was formed. Mm. Um, I had a, I had an authority figure in my life and my family whose temper terrified me, and so I learned to have a really emotional, high-gain antenna so that I could forecast emotional storms on the horizon and prevent them before they kind of roll across the, the horizon and into the area. Um, and then I also was a really uh, a bullied kid. I was a nerd. I didn't have any friends, and I, I started to use this emotional sensibility that kept me safe at home into making me a pathetic target for bullies. Mm. I figured out what kind of got them off and what kind of disappointed them. So I became a disappointed target so that a great success for me in life was not being accepted, but just to be ignored. And becoming aware that uh, I fear my anger because it reflects someone else's anger that used to frighten me has made me realize Um, sometimes I just have to sit down, maybe with a therapist, maybe by myself and ruminate on what makes me angry and just get red faced and just feel angry about something and then let myself know that there's nothing wrong with anger. Mm -hmm. That anger is not a bad emotion. It's not a negative emotion. It's not inherently unhealthy. It's just a way that our body and our personality is trying to tell us something, and that something is a boundary has been pushed or a wrong has been made. And then if we allow anger to motivate us into seeking solutions, or we allow anger to let us know that we need to give ourselves attention, then it's healthy. It's not healthy when I push it down into the nine basement below what we call our inner sanctum. Mm-hmm. Uh, nines have an ability to to have a conversation without even being a part of it. Yeah. Okay. Now hold on. That's so. That is such an. Imp- <laughs> this is so great because you're so you're so familiar with the type, um, and and that's a uh, sort of a feature of nines that I don't think a lot of people know about. Tell people about the inner sanctum. 
Well, if if all of life is exhausting for a nine, trying to maintain external and internal harmony, so we just take little vacations constantly. So in a conversation that we're enjoying with people we love, we can just check out. And uh, we can just kind of trust our body to turn our head and look at people when they're talking to even say basic words and phrases and affirmations <laughs> while we are just either asleep in our mind or imagining something, you know, some being somewhere else or, or for, for nines like me that really uh, one of my kind of ultimate coping mechanisms is food. I might imagine myself eating a pizza if I feel like the conversation is going into a difficult place and just think about the last time I had a, a great pie. Uh, and we just kind of hide in this sanctum and it, we're always at peace in the inner sanctum. But in my own kind of visualization of, of the type, under the inner sanctum is a vault where our feelings are kept. So at, in the inner sanctum, we're actually closest to and most afraid of our own feelings. Um, and so what I've learned to do with anger and other feelings in that inner sanctum model is I go to my inner sanctum, yes, but then in my inner sanctum, I let the feelings out. I, I, can, I know uh, with several nines, uh, when they get what I call the hundred mile stare, mm. where, where they're kind of looking into the middle distance, you're in a conversation with them. And and they're in the room, but they're kind of off. They've they've checked. It. You, you can just tell they have tuned out. And I'll say to them, like I'll say to my wife sometimes, I'll go, "Where did you go? Where are you right now?" And she'll come back, you know. Uh, and you know, it's like just yeah, it's just now. She will also say about the inner sanctum that you know she's driving the car and she's kind of, that that's the that's the rumination room. That's where she even mm-hmm. goes into the past and begins to have conversations that oh i should have said this or what if i'd said that and it's sort of you know she's ruminating over things that she might have said and didn't say or or should i agree or should i disagree Uh, what's it going to cost me if i disagree in terms of relationship you know and and then it's it's just very circular and it's very very difficult it gets very very molasses in there you know Mm mm-hmm mm-hmm so that's that. That's the hundred miles. You do know the nines. Oh boy! <laughs> oh boy! And then of course, I ha- they 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 actually they will look at you like they're agreeing, but they're only seeming to agree. They're I call them like a seeming number. They're seeming to agree, even though they're not. They're actually probably in their head going, "Do I agree? Do I disagree? Should I agree?" And you know, it's. It's just going in a circle. Is that, and this is why the whole ambivalent, I mean, it's crazy, right? I don't know. I've had to learn to like tell my friends when I say yes while you're talking, yes means I hear and understand you. Yes doesn't mean I agree with you. I don't even know if I agree with you. I don't know if I agree with anything. Um, the, the, the fundamental aspect of a nine is not to get to a point of agreeing but to understand, can I put myself in your shoes? Can I really understand how you got to that place? And that means very, very often for a nine, we find that we fully understand and in our nine way, therefore agree with contradictory positions and contradictory issues. A nine can hear two sides of debate, find both sides compelling and honestly tell both groups, I agree with you. And that's, that's useful in the work of peacemaking 
and making people feel heard and known. But it also means that if we're not careful, we can appear to be playing both sides or to be duplicitous because the other types mean something else by agreement. For a nine, in my experience as a nine, agreement just means understanding. Mm. I, I, I understand your experiences. I understand your feelings. I understand your thought process. And I understand how looking at the world through your eyes, what you are saying makes perfect sense. Right. So this is an interesting fact about nines that that I love to unpack with people. And that is, is that here they are. They're positioned at the top of the Enneagram diagram. It has one leg in six, right? It has another leg in three. And uh, three is the most conformist of all points. <laughs> and the other one, the six, is the most nonconformist point, right? So what happens is you have all this ambivalence. You have this, I want to go after life. I want to get stuff done. I want to charge forward. And this other part, which is self-doubting and self-questioning and, and doesn't quite know what to do. And, and, you know, and so you get those together into the same body and you get a lot of sort of tortured mm. kind of, uh, it's like uh, Helen Palmer describes it as, you know, driving with one foot on the gas and the other one on the brake. <laughs> yeah. So your your gas oh, your gas pedal is your three, right? You're you you're you're you know you're pushing on three on the gas pedal, and your six is the brake. You just keep pushing, and you're pushing both at the same time. It's for a nine. If we have found something that lights us up, so for me, I was a bullied kid. Mm -hmm. And I suffered a lot from rejection. Mm. So what'll hit my gas is addressing the hurt people feel from rejection. Mm. If you look at all my work, the books, the podcasts, the talks, everything I do, even all the science stuff, which is amazes and dazzles people, uh, the heart of everything I do is I tell people, you are accepted. Mm. You are validated. And if I'm in that mode, Man, I will work 20 hours a day. I will work myself into exhaustion, and the, the, the gas gets held down. And in my work, uh, when that's the space we're in with the liturgists, I, I can work as hard as anybody. But when I start to lose that mission, when we get involved in logistical things that I'm capable of and don't care about, or if we start to stray from that mission, um, my nineness won't let me, like, raise an objection mm. right <laughs> so what do i do instead i simply say well i'm loyal to my friends i'm loyal to the liturgists and then that emotional energy shifts over to the break and suddenly i'm the one missing deadlines mm -hmm. suddenly i'm the one who doesn't see the emails it's not intentional but that break gets pushed in if i lose that three energy and i become kind of a just an inert mass that can't be moved. That's my form of resistance. Mm -hmm. It's not I'll say you're wrong or I don't think we should do that. It'll just become like pushing a boulder. Mm -hmm. And um, so I'm loyal to you. It's not like the, the relationship's in question. It's not like I'm out of here. It's just 
uh, I've gone away. And sometimes uh, the most confusing times for me are when, like you say, both of those modes get engaged at the same time. That's how I spent most of my life. Mm. And what I what I what my movement in the last few years, and what's made me capable of public work, and what's made me capable of of honestly doing more of what nines do, is learning to moderate those energies and focus on them when appropriate, and also to realize to kind of hack my nine mentality, and understand sometimes the way to get what I need, uh, sometimes the best way of actually preventing conflict is through a tough conversation is through some conflict. So I have to kind of steel myself up first, mm. sometimes for days, but then I'll say, hey, we need to we need to have a put a conversation on the calendar. That's always like a red flag for me, is if you're working with me or a friend and I say, hey, can we put a conversation on the calendar? That means I'm having to steel myself up for saying something you don't want me to say, and my, I think you don't want me to say. But doing that, actually leaning into that, has brought me more intimacy and friendships and not less. Mm. It's brought greater trust with people and not less. But even with that success, I'm still always tempted to just revert to say nothing, feel nothing, be nothing. Mm-hmm. And then just kind of um, how can I, how can I just kind of stay at peace through some kind of narcotic? Mm-hmm. And I don't mean a, a, a literal chemical narcotic, although I think for some nines it probably is. Yep. For me, my narcotics are walking outside by myself, eating ice cream, eating pizza. Uh, s- honestly, I will sit in a chair in a room and look at the wall, not television, not reading. I'll just kind of sit and stare out into space, and the, which... <laughs> It's really hard for other people to imagine as being therapeutic. But for a nine, that's like, oh, man, that's as good as it gets. Yeah, you know, um, this whole idea of narcotizing is so uh, important because what nines are doing oftentimes is they're tamping down desire. They're, 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 they're pressing down life force. I mean, literally, they're turning down the life force. Uh, it's almost as if they get too close to something, too close to something too important in their life. They just turn it down because it's almost like, I don't want to go there. I don't, I don't want to claim that because the, the, I don't want to claim self-assertion. I don't, I just don't want to, mm. I just don't want to do it. And so then they, well, what do you got to do? I mean, you got to figure out somehow or another to kind of keep all that stuff down. So whether it's eating or, uh, for some, it would be exercise, oddly enough, or it might be, uh, you know, could be well, any number of things like sitting on the, I mean, being in a couch potato, laying on the couch and watching six episodes of stranger things, you know, it's just it, it anything to check out, to get disconnected from the anger, from the, des, from desire, from all those life force. I mean, yeah, I mean, narcotizing is, and you got to tell a nine that is not relaxing. Because that's what they'll tell you. Hmm. They'll tell you, I'm relaxing. You go, no, you, no, no, that is not relaxing. That is called, you know, like, uh, that's like saying, you know, if you got a meth needle in your arm, I'm relaxing. You know? Right, right. No, it's not. It's a false form. It's a counterfeit form of peace. I had, uh, I guess maybe the first time I realized that I was in a therapy session. And um, at, at this point in my life, I was going to therapy because um, I had a faith transition. 
I didn't believe what I used to. And I found myself kind of ejected from my faith community, mm. which was incredibly traumatic. Uh, I'd say it's probably the most traumatic thing that's happened in my life. So I was seeing this therapist and she would ask me about like when I've been rejected. So I said, well, you know, talked about the bully thing. And I described in clinical terms and excruciating detail, acts of bullying, what had happened to me, what I did in response, no emotional investment, which made me think, oh, I've processed this completely. And then my therapist said, well, how did that make you feel? Mm. And when she said, well, how did that make you feel? I felt like I'd passed by a, a hallway in my house with a door that I'd never seen. And I put my hand up to the door and it was just, it felt as hot as the sun behind that door. Like the house was on fire behind the door. So I was like, well, I'm not going to open that door. So I said, that question makes me really uncomfortable. (laughs) And she said, why does that question make you uncomfortable? I said, well, if I talk to you about how I feel, I'm either going to like yell or sob. And she goes, well, why would that be a bad thing? And I was like, well, those are really wasteful emotions. And she says, why is that a wasteful emotion? I said, well, they're very unpleasant to experience and they don't accomplish anything. Mm. They don't make me feel good. They make me feel bad. And they don't change the situation. And she said, well, do you think it's healthy just to bottle those feelings down? I said, well, I don't know if it's healthy. She said, well, what if you just what if you just told me how you felt? And if you cry, that's okay. So I started to describe how I felt. I couldn't say a word. And instead, I just kind of sobbed for a half second. Kind of a, <gasps> and then I stopped. Mm. And my eyes dried up, and she said, what just happened? I said, well, when I was a little kid, I realized that if I cried, they just kept beating me. Mm. Because then it was funny. So I learned how to relax my torso and how to clench my tear ducts and do a series of things that would make me not cry. And ever since then, I've actually been unable to cry. Mm. So I went through a time in therapy where I... We literally just got into a space talking about uh, experiences where I had to reverse that process and actually allow myself to cry, which led to weeks and weeks of therapy where all I did was cry. Mm. But I was in my 30s. But when when family members would die, I could never cry. I could only have these little momentary sobs at different moments in the day, which I felt grateful for. It felt necessary to mourn their passing but it's like i spent several months in a therapist's office letting go of 30 plus years of grief Mm. and once i was able to do that it was this this briny river coming out of out of my soul that made me feel clean and it was only after i learned to accept sadness and learn to be able to cry in grief or lament or heartache, that then I could start to do the same with anger. There you go. Come on now, and tell me about that. Because I I was just sitting here going, okay, I'm a four. I could cry for the next, you know, for whatever. But I, I, <laughs> you know, tell me about, but to get to me about that anger now, you're saying that the doorway into the anger was first, you had to plow through the grief. Is that is that what you're saying? And, and Yes. Okay. The, gr- the anger was underneath an ocean's worth of grief. Yes. Right, so the the it turns out I had an ocean, and instead of bedrock underneath it, there was magma. Okay, okay, but this is fascinating. I mean, I've never really thought about this, but for for many people, 
it's actually anger is the first thing. And then it's mm. grief is what's underneath this. And they go to anger because that's a place of power and control. You don't feel like you're, you know, uh, powerless. I mean, grief is really a powerless feeling. Uh, and then so. But a nine is fine being powerless. Exactly. There's nothing this is scary about being powerless. Ex- <laughs> I know this is why it's so fascinating. I've never really sort of thought about this until you're saying it. So keep going. You had grief first. Now tell me about how it got I you had to grief, anger. And that was fine because because grief means I'm not affecting anyone but myself. I, I was a ball. I worked in a Fortune 100 company and I had lots of employees and my own authority terrified me. Because if I have authority over someone, if I have power over them, then I have an increased ability to hurt them. My actions can cause suffering. And that is unthinkable for a nine. I hate being in charge of people. I hate having authority. There's no authority on earth I trust less than myself. <laughs> and the power that comes from anger terrifies me because I'm I'm six foot one. I weigh two hundred and forty pounds. I'm pretty saggy around the middle, but I'm still a big guy. But you're a handsome if I but get, you're a handsome man. I am I'm incredibly I've always handsome, felt but, deeply attracted to you. <laughs> whenever I get angry, it scares people. Mm. People are frightened of me if I show anger. Mm-hmm. And I don't I don't want that. So when I first started to get in touch with the fact that I had anger underneath all that grief it's like I shut the vault door twice as hard as it had been closed in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I've had to learn, uh, again, mainly through therapy and also through having really safe friendships. I'm very blessed in that I have a, a, a good number of people in my life who will really accept me up or down, good or bad, wherever we are. Right. Uh, to say I can say I can have an outburst which if you don't suppress them for 30 years, an outburst is actually not that terrifying. And then you can just say, I'm sorry, that really upset me. What we're talking about hurt my feelings. Mm. And at that point, you, you cease to have anger being about uh, power and instead as like diagnostic. So when it's something about me, my anger tends to be, I treat it as a warning light. What I have found on the other hand is I actually can get angry in like a sustained way about issues of justice. When I see how increasingly how women are treated in our society through sexual harassment and sexual assault, I get angry and I stay angry. Mm. As I get more and more aware of the way people of color have different life experiences than I do, I get angry. And I found that that anger, as long as it doesn't become a drug, where it's an outrage that I'm just enjoying, if it's instead a fire in my belly that says, I cannot tolerate this injustice, that is not an anger to be feared. That is an anger to be harnessed. Mm -hmm. Uh, And of course, I'm a person um, uh, who puts a lot of uh, emphasis on the teachings of uh, Jesus. And part of my journey towards accepting anger uh, was to to see times in Scripture that uh, Jesus is illustrated as being angry mm-hmm. and being upset, sometimes caring about himself, sometimes being upset about what other people are doing, and sometimes being truly furious over issues of injustice. And I almost needed like divine permission to accept anger because the only 
anger I understood as a child was an anger that scared people into submission and falling in line. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, a true anger isn't about that. Yeah, I think a lot of nines would say that the fear, one of the fears they have about anger is that it would lead to annihilation. Uh, that that mm. to actually experience it or to let it loose would it would it would involve fatalities, uh, and as a four, it's interesting. I was just sort of thinking about this for a moment. Um, when we have grief, and I would say in therapy, the first thing I felt was grief, not anger, but it's for an entirely different reason. It's for fours. It's because oftentimes we um, tend to fix our attention on some experience of suffering in order to avoid looking at or thinking about the real issue of suffering mm. and so a lot of times mm. like well i'm all i'm really grief stricken when actually you just don't want to look at the fact that you're super angry you, you know and so you go to your default which is sort of sadness and uh, maybe being a victim or being someone special that was you know marginalized etc 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 so okay so i want to know from you how you know you've managed you know i think our stereotype of nines is is that they're kind of like bill murray in that movie what was it saint vincent what was that movie remember when he's like uh, (laughs) (laughs) he's in the oh man that's a good film yeah right (laughs) isn't that a nine he's in the he's in the lawn Uh, yeah he's in his bathrobe and the lawn chair in the backyard and you know just kind of it looks resigned but really it's just going with the flow of whatever life brings right but you've got two big podcasts you a demanding speaking schedule you you've got uh books you you you, you're a very accomplished person if i were saying if i were stereotyping not typing i'd say boy you can't be a nine you look like a three you know what i'm saying or or i would say you're an eight or whatever so help people understand because the 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 passion or the deadly sin of nines is sloth. You do not sound slothful in the stereotypical sense of the word. I know why some of our listeners may not unpack that for us. I first would say that I still view myself as incredibly slothful. <laughs> I, I self-identify as slothy. Um, slothish. Because are you slothish? Definitely. Very, very well. I mean, my my wife literally bought me a beanbag sloth years ago before we even knew about the enneagram. That felt good because I mean, yeah, I mean, it was just uh, that's what I become. I get very tired, and I still do. Uh, so part of what I do is I start by acknowledging, like, I'm a person who needs rest. I can go to the party that starts at 10 p.m. occasionally. But most of the time, I go to bed at 9.30, um, and I kind of like preemptively sloth. So if I go to bed at 9.30, like every night, maybe 10.30, um, I start building a reservoir of physical and emotional energy, and, and I start rising early, and uh, I build a routine for myself. So one thing nines like a lot is predictability. So my day is incredibly ordered every day. Um, I start with this creative time and this creative work in the morning time after I kind of have breakfast and time with my family. And then at around lunchtime, I'll kind of shift gears and I'll go into more of like communication with the outside world. And then in the evening, I'll spend time with my family or friends again and then early to bed. And that's my non-tour routine. Um, but 
I'm sure a lot of nines would say, well, I've tried that and I end up just not doing anything in those creative hours. And that's because uh, you're still a mystery to yourself. You haven't learned enough about you to know what you actually want to do in life. So I think it's necessary for every nine to figure out why they're a nine, to figure out why they're afraid of their own preferences and their own feelings and certainly their own anger. Because if you find what provoked that wound, you start seeing where it exists in the world and it calls out to you. And when you hear that call of other people's woundedness, you wake up every morning thinking, how can I address those wounds? And how can I prevent other people from being wounded in that way? Nines make incredible advocates for victims and marginalized people. Mm. And when you find that energy, suddenly you can't stop working. Suddenly at the end of the day, your partner or your spouse is dragging you out of your office saying, watch out, you're going to exhaust yourself. I mean, last year, I put myself in the emergency room from working too much, Mm. which is an unimaginable thing for a nine to say, but it comes from that self-knowledge. Here's how I've been hurt, acknowledging that, yes, you've actually been hurt, but then using your process towards healing and towards health as a way of inviting other people to do the same, and suddenly strangers think, you're a three. (laughs) All your friends know you're a nine because they see you when you fall out of that mode, when you're tired again, when you just want to be still. Uh, But casual acquaintances see a lot of podcasts and a lot of interviews and a lot of books and a lot of projects get putting out. But it's because literally everything you do comes down to that single thing that made you a nine in the first place. Mm. So I was on uh, a call this morning with uh, Joe Saxton. And essentially she was saying, and I'm going to adapt it for our purposes, that the Enneagram helps us know who we were before people told us who we were supposed to be. Hmm. That's the essence of it. Okay, now that wow. I adapted that from, from an, she didn't say it about the Enneagram, but about something else. But I thought, well, that's kind of awesome. Um, <laughs> you know, so what, I mean, is that, is that kind of what you're getting at? It's like you, you're, you're breaking through these structures, these, these imposed identities, these, et cetera. And, and, but, and you're getting to the core of the person, to what lights them up. And what you're also saying is, I think, which is fantastic, which is, where the trauma has hit core, mm-hmm. where wound has hit core. And, and what you're saying is that there's a tremendous amount of unleashed energy in there that can be leveraged for some really cool things. Yeah, absolutely. Huh. That the, the, I mean, at first, <laughs> at first when you get to the heart and the trauma, it's just bleeding. Mm-hmm. And so there's not a lot of energy there. You actually lose a lot of energy. Mm-hmm. But if you go through the process of, of facing the wounds, facing what some would call like the shadow self, I guess, um, and getting in touch with that pain and grieving it and dealing with it and acknowledging it, then it becomes a scab and then it becomes scar tissue. And that scar tissue 
has a strength and resilience that the previous tissue did not. But Mike, mo- um, okay, but hold on a second. Most nines I know will have none of this. I mean, I'm just telling you, unless I suppose you, they, they don't have any choice. I mean, they hit some kind of a wall where, you know, it's either deal or you're in deep <laughs> You know, you're going to lose a relationship or you're going to lose your job. You mean like losing their entire community all at once, something like that? Well, <laughs> well okay, well, let's talk about that. Because that's what it took for me. Okay, because most nines will not go to where you're talking about unless yeah. they hit some kind of a major wall. Because why? I mean, it's like, why would I want to muster the energy and go into these dark spaces that are going to just upset my tranquility that I've been guarding at, you know, uh, my whole life. Um, gosh, I mean, how do you, well, how, do you, how would a nine to, do to it? The nines. Okay, do it, please. I would say, hey, nines, you're out there and your tranquility. Have you ever had Origel? You know what Origel mm-hmm. is? It's, a, it's an anesthetic for your mouth. You get a cold sore. Yeah. I want you to imagine that you just take Origel, a whole tube, and you put it on a toothbrush, and you just brush all your gums and your tongue with Origel, okay? That's the tranquility of a nine that hasn't faced their woundedness. Mm. It's just numbness. Mm. It's not tranquility. It feels tranquil because there's no pain. But if you try to eat a delicious slice of pepperoni pizza with a mouthful of Origel... You're not going to enjoy the pizza. If you try to drink a great bottle of wine with a friend with a mouthful of Origel, you will never pick up the finer notes of what's happening in that drink. In the same way that if you if you don't at least contemplate the degree to which you're treating life as basically an anesthetic, you'll never experience the joy that's on the other side of the sorrow you refuse to face. So you you, ba- you have to make a bargain with yourself, and you don't have to do it all at once. Your life doesn't have to go to pieces. But if you'll start paying attention in those moments when you're going blank, and instead of saying, why am I retreating? Mm-hmm. Making an intentional choice to push yourself back into the present, to hear that thing that was said that hurt your feelings to see that reaction to a joke you made that fell flat and to actually embody that that made you feel something, Mm -hmm. although it's unpleasant in that moment, we know through neuroscience that all of our feelings are mere images of each other. And if you're not willing to allow yourself emotional unpleasantness or suffering, you also rob yourself of tears running down your cheek at a sunset Mm -hmm. or the true joy of intimacy with someone who loves Mm -hmm. you for every bad thing you let out of the cellar you're more than compensated with a new high in emotional dynamic range Woo! wow we just had a just sort of a, a wisdom dump in the middle of our conversation here about nines, because I think this is, I mean, these are just universal laws. These are universal spiritual and psychological laws. Okay. Now here's a, here's a, here's a question for you. Uh, you can help me solve a riddle. I, I now, I know how many, uh, based on numbers from our podcast of my audience, which, which numbers are most represented? Hmm. 
Like who most listens to typology? What what couple of numbers do you think? It's got to be fours. Um, I, w- I mean, I always want to say four five just because four is like I want to hear about how I'm special and five like I want to just learn. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's this information right. for me to receive. Um. I'm trying. I'm trying to think who else would be really, really drawn to a show. Yeah. Well, it's hard because like the, I think the six is like doesn't want to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> so interestingly, uh, the two biggest audiences, if I were just to go off numbers, right, of, yeah. of listeners, would be nines and ones. No way. Nines and ones. Yep. I projected the liturgist audience onto your audience is what happened. Is that what happened? Our, our five, four is just off the chart. I can see yeah. that. I can see that. So yeah. nines, nines and, well, and now ones. Why, wow. Can you please tell me why? I understand why ones do it because ones are thinking, how do I self-improve? I need to listen to this so I can be a better person. I need to understand myself. Yeah, that makes I sense. I need to understand others better, blah, blah, blah. Please tell me why. They're, I'm confused as to why my nine, the nine portion of my audience is so large. Gosh, am I a nine or not? I bet I can figure out through this podcast. Like, I think I might be a nine. But if I can just hear all the the the, the different people who are different types, I might find out I'm something else, or I might be reaffirmed that I'm a nine. Mm-hmm. I think to be a nine is to always wonder if you're really a nine or not. Mm. Um, because every story... I mean, I've listened to your podcast, and, and I find so often uh so much resonance with other voices on the enneagram and that's that's our life that's the the emotional sensors we developed to escape uh pain in the beginning end up letting us see life through the eyes of others and i would imagine that your podcast is just an incredible exercise for nines to turn those sensors up high in a way that's safe and predictable um, because they can react to the podcast, but the podcast won't react to them. Oh, that's fascinating. I also think nines are a bit probably uh, those who are on a spiritual journey, let's say, are interested in their trying to, I guess this may be true of every number, but I think nines in particular, they're just trying to unlock the they're just trying to find the key to unlock a door into the mystery of their own lives. And, and mm-hmm. I think it's hard for nines because, uh, because <sighs> I want to say this, I think nines when they're healthy are probably the most spiritually advantaged number on the Enneagram by far, mm-hmm. by far. Uh, I think that uh, nines when they're healthy because they can see the world through the perspective of every other type. When you were talking about walking outside, no no number on the Enneagram is in tune with the spiritual idea that everything belongs, that all things are mm. interconnected like nines do. Nobody. They, mm. I've never met a nine who doesn't like the outdoors. They love, they feel so connected to everything they see. They see it, they experience it in their body. They're a body type. I mean, and, and I would say that they are natural mystics. Hmm. When they're really healthy, hmm. they are natural mystics, and and I think the Dalai Lama, uh, Pope Francis, these, you know, Julian and Norwich, all shall be well, all shall be well. This sort of trust in the universe that that all ends well, you know. That's 
boy, that's nine when it's great, right? Wow. But at the same time, I also think they're the most challenged at waking up. Uh, I mean, every number has to wake up. That's I mean, that's the spiritual journey. In in you know, it's a precis of every spiritual journey is wake up, right? So, but I think nines are in a deeper sleep, and it's it's almost like right. they're in a deeper sleep. But if they can come out of that deeper sleep, you know, you can get bummed about being in that deeper sleep. But if you do your work, even though it's going to be harder maybe than it is for other numbers, on the other side, you're the most spiritually advantaged. That's my opinion, you know, for what it's worth. Uh, I mean, I, I'll just say this is, it's hard to say as a nine, but I, um, sometimes feel spiritually advantaged. Mm. I sometimes feel like God feels more closely to me more easily than I, I see happen in other people's lives. It's easy for me to see God, uh, not only out on a walk in the woods, but in a room full of friends, uh, and, and oftentimes uh, in the face of an enemy. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's something that I, I can't quite articulate, which is why I'm drawn to mysticism. Mm-hmm. But um, that pervasive presence of God everywhere um, is something I've un- been unable to get away from yes. since kind of doing some self-development work. Yes, so that's what you're talking about there is that beautiful, electric, urgent immediacy of God in the present moment that when you're healthy, you are really connected to. You live in a deeper state of profound conscious awareness uh, that mm. God is an environment that is pervading you internally, externally, and uh, I just think... Yeah, I mean, I think nines do that better than any other number mm. when they're when mm. they're healthy. And I, you know, that's why I've many ways I'm like, well, geez, if I could be anything, it had to be a seven like Stephen Colbert, <laughs> <laughs> you know, or, oh, or, man, or yes. a nine like you know Tick Not Han or somebody. You know what I mean? I don't know if he's a nine or not, but you get the idea. I, I just think that that yeah. you guys get to be like Jedi masters eventually. You know, <laughs> the rest of us. I'm a four. I, you know, I'm a four. I get to be. I get to be some. Somebody in rehab who wants to hurt himself. Anyway, <laughs> Jedi masters I, I wanna... who don't care about it though is the weird thing. <laughs> yeah, well, that's but but that's the thing though, because it is. It, you know, I've done a study of, of uh, Tibetan Buddhism for the last five years. I've been just deeply immersed in Buddha, mm. in, in Buddhist literature, both Zen and in the, uh, the the Tibetan tradition. And again, you know, you get up to the levels of the mystics across traditions, they all start to sound alike, right? <laughs> you yeah. know, I mean, you get down into the low world of like, everyone's a systematic theologian. They all sound like they want to argue and they're all different. You get up into the upstairs of the Sufis and the, you know, the sort of the top upper echelon of some of this thinking. It's everyone starts to sound alike, you know, and, right. and they argue less. So I guess the point I want to make is that I think that's where nines live. They, they have this ability to see the bigger landscape. I mean, sitting on top of the Enneagram, they have an unobstructed view of the la- of the land. Every other number, that's not unobstructed. It's like, I, I know this is a metaphor. I'm, I'm using it to the nth degree here, but I think it's good poetry. I think it's true mm. that they, mm. that you just see an infinite horizon that every other number doesn't. And, and, uh, but you got to work for it. That's for sure. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, okay. Cause I'll, otherwise you're down in the middle of the whole thing. 
Yes. And you can see nothing. <laughs> exactly. All right. So I don't want to take up too much of your time. I know you got to get going, but 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 I don't want to let you. So my next question is: um, Do you, when you left this church thing, first of all, I want to know. Just give me a short answer as to why you left it. I mean, did you make an announcement that you were leaving? Because that's not very ninety. I mean, a nine would no. A nine could go for years saying they still believed when they didn't in order to remain I, I did connected. That. <laughs> okay. Right. To remain connected to the group because that's survival. So what happened, man? How did you get what why how did you leave? Two years I pretended to be a Christian when I was in fact an atheist precisely to preserve those social connections. That's so weird that you just said that because I didn't know that was a nine thing. That's just what I did. And then I had um a spiritual awakening through a mystical experience. Um, I saw God in the form of a, a bright light. Um, and that, that that's metaphoric speech at best. I can't mm-hmm. really describe what I saw. Mm-hmm. And then I, I felt myself in the presence of God. And um, I thought I had brain cancer as in response to that experience. So I, I asked a, my neurologist for a CAT scan and an MRI, and I got one, and I didn't have any brain tumor, and I was very upset. And uh, so now I had to like reconfront this spirituality, this this religion I'd let go of. And it was now in a much more uh, mystical place. My my faith was actually kind of completely mystical. The first. Um, things that made me feel connected to God again were actually Sufi mystic writings. Mm. Um, and then I kind of laddered down back into Christian mystics and then back down toward Christian theology. But the heart of the whole thing was mysticism. Well, my church was Southern Baptist. So when you have this beautiful experience and you go to explain it to your friends and family about a mystical oneness and unity that connects all things that we're calling the Christ, that's fine. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't go well. It does not go well. So um, it led to every Sunday being conflict, 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 where I could either lie and say that, never mind, I, I was wrong, or I could be true to this awakening and continue to have conflict every time I went to church. Mm. And people calling for my resignation from different things I did in the church, and uh, people stopping my wife in the grocery store saying they were really praying for our family because of all you know, I was doing. The, the word, the phrase false prophet or false teacher started getting thrown around. And so uh, I realized that the only way to honor that community uh, was to leave it. So I did, uh, and and many people in that church were very excited that I left. Many people, perhaps even a slightly larger number, were grieved that I left. Um, but once I was gone, you know the the phone didn't really ring. I didn't I didn't keep in touch with many people in that community who had been. I mean, they they they, they I got married in the church. My children were born in that church. I watched my oldest daughter come out of the waters of baptism in that church. I mean, all these cherished memories. These were the people who were there for my family when there were deaths or illnesses. And they were suddenly gone. Mm. 
Um, so what happened? Tell me, tell me the, what was the moment at which you said enough is enough, regardless of what this is going to cost me, I have to do this. What would, did you have a Luther moment, you know, a here I stand moment? What, what, what happened? There, I was teaching high school seniors and people wanted me to resign from that. So I did. And I was playing bass in the worship band, and some people said they wouldn't play in the band if Ugh. I continued to play. So I stopped. Mm. And um, I just sat in the pew. And then when I would try to go to Sunday school classes, people would complain that I was in their class, so I'd move to another class. Oh. And then people would complain I was in that class, so I'd move to another class. And I realized there was no amount of invisible that would make this okay. Oh. It was impossible for me to hide my presence from everyone in the church. And um, so I decided to move on, take my kids out of the only faith community they'd ever known. And uh, suddenly my family were um, spiritually homeless and exiles, which mm. was really strange to go from like Deacon's family to uh, the brunch club. But that's that's... That's uh, that's how it played out. Wow, because you know what 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 you in a way what you're describing in not in not a, it's not a terribly dramatic way externally, but nine <laughs> no, but nines have these moments of what's called right action. Mm. You, do you know about that with nines? I don't. No. Oh, okay. So right action is a a, a big theme with nines. Okay, so. Um, right action means, you know, nines will go with the flow and, you know, go along to get along. But often, sometimes, and it only happens a few times in their lives. It could be three, four times in their life. They have a moment where it's like, enough is enough. I, I, you know, here I stand. And it, it surprises mm -hmm. people when it happens. But literally they have a, they have a, you know, kind of a Rosa Parks moment or whatever you want to call it. It's this moment where they say, I am taking my stand, and regardless of what it will cost me in terms of conflict, being disliked, being disowned, here I stand, I'm not moving. And when they make that decision, a nine is not moving. <laughs> they are not moving, and it's called right action. Well, I had that moment. All right. <laughs> um, I lost my faith. I reevaluated how I saw the world morally, and I realized um, I had no reason as an atheist to be against same-sex marriage. And then I came back to faith through this 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 mystical experience, and I couldn't get back to the place where I had a problem with same-sex marriage. Mm -hmm. And here I am, a Southern Baptist deacon, and before I told anyone about seeing a bright light, the first thing I did. Uh, was on Chick-fil-A day. I don't know if you remember that a few years back. <laughs> I'm feeling it. I'm feeling this coming. I released uh, like a 5,000-word blog post on why I thought there was oh. absolutely no issue with same-sex marriage or Christians mm -hmm. being gay. Right. And um, that went over like a lead balloon in my faith community. <laughs> mm -hmm. I bet. Yeah. Yes, I bet, uh, it, I bet it did. But I would not be moved. I would say, you can disagree with me on this, and I can understand why you would, because I used to agree with you. 
you'll just be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that's really what started uh, all the conflict was the fact that I was resolute that I was not going to be a part of LGBTQ people being pushed to the margins of the church or even pushed out of it completely. Mm. That, on the other hand, I was going to be an advocate for their full and unconditional inclusion. And it stunned everyone. Mm -hmm. uh, not only because to everyone's mind I was a good Southern Baptist, but to the fact that although I would talk about it as much people wanted to, I was completely resolute and immovable on the subject. Yes. So that's that's a nine in right action, because normally what a nine would do is merge with the viewpoints or the opinions and the preferences of whomever they were with. So if you were a good Southern Baptist nine, chances are you would just simply merge or fuse with the opinions of whoever the, your crowd was or whoever you were married to, or your partner, mm -hmm. you, know, you know what I mean? And you would just kind of almost quote the opinions of the people that you heard around you to avoid conflict or disconnection from them. Now, what you're saying is uh, you had a moment where it was like, I don't care. I know what I know, what I know, what I know, and this is what it is. And I could care less whether or not you agree with me or not. This is, this is where I stand. And it's a very powerful thing when nines do it. People pay attention. Yeah, it ended up uh, costing me pretty much everything socially um my entire social world um but it also kind of led to us taking action on that and the liturgists and if you've heard about that show at all uh we had an episode we talked about lgbtq equality um and that episode has been downloaded four million times yeah i know that episode and, well uh, mm -hmm. And we've had thousands and thousands of people write in and say that it changed the way they view that topic. Mm -hmm. And if thousands have written in, we know there's many more who haven't written in. And that that ended up being like a, a measurable move towards justice in the church world, especially in the evangelical church. Mm. And um, that's, that's, what is, that's what is remarkable to me. Uh, as a nine, that's why I want to encourage nines to to not narcotize themselves and instead move towards self-awareness to facilitate that transformation from a passive source of narcotic peacemaking to an active source of peacemaking mm. in the world. Well, that's about as good a place as I could find to stop. I, I, I mean, I could have this thing go on forever, but uh, I, I know you, you, you've got a life to live, and I, I got a, a life to live. And, and but I want you to know that mine's been enriched today by, by speaking to you. I, I, oh, I always sort of end a, a show by trying to give people some, you know, maybe words of encouragement or words that will help them on the, the journey toward becoming their true self, be finding to live mm -hmm. in essence, right? Um, you got three things you would tell nines. I mean, you've told them a lot, but just maybe just two or three sentences on each. You know, if you're a nine and you want to grow, if you want to wake up, how's that? I mean, if, just to live spiritually, a, con a conscious life spiritually, how, what would you tell nines to do? in terms of daily practice or anything, just to kind of facilitate it? I would tell you, uh, my fellow nines, um, plan your day in advance. Mm. 
and make make a daily routine that that you make every day similar because that that order will let you explore and feel safe. Mm. So I'd first say be orderly. Second, I would say be present. You know, start meditating. Start mm-hmm. doing mindfulness training, yes. something that encourages you to stay in the moment so you can gain awareness of when you're disengaging so you can be aware of why you're doing that. Wonderful, wonderful. Keep going. And then third, I would probably say um, you know about your inner sanctum, but look under those floorboards. Mm. What grief and what anger are you pushing down, and why are you so afraid of those feelings? Why is it that you're convinced if you get angry, you'll literally kill people? Mm. Um, Perhaps instead what you're doing is avoiding the energy other people have to act and move in the world because you're afraid of your emotions. So in a safe environment, maybe even a professional environment, get in touch with that anger and that sadness and experience them. And in doing so, find the ability to escape this laid back sloth posture and move into shaping the world into something that is more at peace. Mm. Oh, that's good. Now, Oh, woo! I'm feeling really. I feel. I'm feel. I don't know. I'm feeling like I'm. Yeah. So I. I have a. So now to a completely mundane question as we close out. On the liturgists and on Ask Science, Mike, do you you guys use Patreon? We do. Yeah. Okay. Do you do it on both shows? Yeah, both shows. Okay, so we've just started Patreon. We tell tell people what Patreon is, so I don't have to be the dope Pat- that tells them what it is. Patreon's a crowdfunding platform, so uh, you've heard of Kickstarter that lets people make amazing things once. Patreon is like Kickstarter, but more of a subscription. You commit to a monthly amount that helps people make great things on an ongoing basis. Like Typology or The Liturgists or Ask Science Mike, right? Precisely, yes. Exactly. So, my friends, if you didn't, listen, if you just listened to this episode and you didn't get something out of it, Chances are you're either dead <laughs> and someone hasn't told you to lay down yet. Uh, but if, in fact, you are someone who did get something out of it, and this is content that matters to you, if you if you think that this is somehow uh, a generative conversation that's, that, that is, is helping to seed uh, compassion and empathy and understanding mm. and to help people become their level best. I mean, I want you to go to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash typology. And just, I mean, seriously, a buck, five bucks, whatever it is, we will give you some bonus content, but I'm just telling you, well, first of all, I just think this is the future. Uh, I think this is how it's going to be mm. going on in the future. And uh, we need your help because my, I mean, this stuff's more expensive than we ever imagined when we got into it, isn't it? it oh my gosh. Yeah. We, we have like a, a, a team of staff yes. for, to make the liturgist podcast happen. So it's, right. and it's impossible without people's help. Yes. Well, Hey brother. And I've seen people love topology. I see, I see people talking about it all over online. So I'm sure they also would be more than happy to, out of the generosity and what they've received, maybe offer a little back. Well, everybody, I want you to listen to The Liturgists. It's one of my favorite podcasts. I want you to go listen to Ask Science Mike. You can go to Mike's website at Mike. 
AskScienceMike.com. Well, that's a wonderful URL. And you got to <laughs> – what, are you out speaking soon or what are you doing? Uh, I'm off through February. When February rolls around, I'm all over the road again. So Yeah, that's me as well. And, of course, we share booking agents. We do. Yeah. Jim Chafee at Chafee Management, C-H-A-F-F-E-E, management.com. So if you want to get Mike or I to speak at an event, you can always get a hold of Jim. He's a fine eight on the Enneagram that would be more than happy <laughs> to more than happy to, to force you into a corner and make you book us. Mike, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank, thank you, you my friend. We'll talk soon. Bye-bye. Talk to you soon. Bye. Okay, now, let me just tell you why that show was so gratifying for me. First of all, I really like Mike. And... You know, that's so it's always a delight to get on the horn with him or to run into him at a conference or, or wherever. But here's the deal. We started this show because we wanted to explore the mystery of the human personality. And I would just say the human, you know, just the person and how, you know, we can use the Enneagram system as a tool to become our most authentic selves. Well, I think we, I think Mike helped us exceed ourselves today. That, that's my feeling. I think I think he ex- helped us exceed the mission and I honestly, I, I think, you know, by whatever, for whatever reason, I just find that happening more and more in these conversations. These conversations are urgent. They're urgent because we're living in a time of so much conflict and so much, um, you know, uh, wrong action, uh, not right action. And a time of so much reactivity and low self-awareness. And man, I, I just can't say enough about how this tool, the Enneagram, can help people wake up, to spiritually wake up. Well, I've been preaching. I got to go. I love you, typology, tribe. And remember the words of the great Oscar Wilde. Be yourself. Everybody else is already taken. Next week, everybody. Everybody.